Join host Michael G. Cartwright for searching conversations with UND faculty and staff about our common future. On June 19, 1865, word reached the community in Texas that they were free. The following year, these former slaves gathered at the AME Church in Galveston to celebrate the good news of freedom. That occasion became known as Juneteenth. Each month, our colleague Michael will talk with members of the UND community. Join us, Juneteenth Conversations. We look forward to sharing with you there. Hello, I'm Michael Cartwright, host of the Juneteenth Conversation podcast at the University of Indianapolis. Juneteenth is not only a holiday when we celebrate the good news that African-Americans were freed from slavery in 1865. It's also about cultivating a particular kind of imagination. It's about remembering our past truthfully in the context of the present, believing that the future can be transformed by what we do from day to day. In several previous episodes of the Juneteenth Conversations, we've discussed the shadows cast by Jim Crow segregation in Marion County, Indianapolis, and on the history of our university. In this month's episode, I want to revisit that notion in the context of talking about what many observers have called the new Jim Crow, which often takes the form of the incarceration of large numbers of persons who are often undocumented or who have run into legal problems that leave them in danger of being deported. I'm very pleased to be joined for today's conversation by the co-founders of Mariposa Legal, a nonprofit venture located here on the south side of Indianapolis. Mariposa combines representation for detained and undocumented immigrants, especially those seeking relief, protection, and or asylum. The directors of Mariposa's project are Hannah Cartwright, an attorney who is also trained in social work in addition to being my daughter, and Romelia Solano, a doctor, doctoral candidate in political science at the University of Notre Dame. I have invited them to talk with me today about their work with those who find themselves caught in the net of conflicting jurisdictions and legal remedies associated with citizen deportation, et cetera. More about that shortly. First, I wanna begin with an arresting image that I believe has everything to do with sustaining our ability to anticipate a Juneteenth future in which social justice and peace are uh, realized. St. Augustine wrote, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage, anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way they are. These words from the writings of St. Augustine um, have been put to calligraphy by a wonderful calligrapher, Erica Woods, who um, has created a visual setting for this evocative statement that presents a pair of protesters who are engaged in struggle. In Erica's artistic representation, the word hope frames this display of anger and courage. And I like it because it reminds me that these things are interactive. We do have to struggle with the way things are. There are good reasons to be angry about the plight of immigrant peoples. And those who dare to be courageous in the struggle against injustice also help to inspire hope in those who are tempted to give in to resignation that it is not possible to change unjust conditions. 
So I want to thank the two of you for the work you're doing to inspire hope in others, uh, because I'm aware that um, these are fraught matters to talk about. These are matters uh, that are surrounded by struggle uh, and trauma. And these are um, matters that uh, so often have been death dealing um, and life depriving to people. So thank you very much for um, being with me uh, today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. First, I wanna hear more about the mission of Mariposa and how the two of you perceive the intersections of your research and advocacy on behalf of immigrants seeking documentation, protected status and or citizenship. You might begin by saying something about the origin of the name for this venture. Uh, yes, so um, the name of our organization is Mariposa Legal um, and Mariposa means butterfly in Spanish. Um, and um, for those who may have encountered um, any type of um, immigration advocacy, the butterfly is often a common image of um, fighting for justice in a variety of ways for immigrants um, because of the migration patterns, especially um, going from North America um, down towards Mexico and South America. Um, of, um, of butterflies. So um, we wanted to have sort of an evocative image from the very beginning that um, for those who, especially many of our clients who speak Spanish would immediately sort of associate, ah, perhaps these are people who are gonna fight on our behalf. Um, and so, you know, our logo is literally a butterfly, um, but it also provides a nice uh, shorthand um, when people ask, you know, uh, where are your lawyers from? Um, if it's a long acronym, it can be kind of difficult to remember. Um, and so clients can just say Mariposa um, and go from there. So um, that's, where our, that's where our name came from. Um, and our work, we have, we have kind of three trajectories for our work. Um, the main piece uh, as an immigration attorney, um, uh, we provide direct legal representation for Indiana residents specifically. Um, who are detained uh, by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or um, what we refer to as ICE. Um, and that means that when people are detained in ICE custody, that they're going to have uh, an immigration case before the Immigration Court um, or the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the um, appellate body. Um, and so um, we provide um, comprehensive legal services from the time people are detained, whether it's conducting intakes or explaining their rights. Um, in pre-COVID times, we provide, you know, know your rights presentations and try to provide um, know your rights literature to folks um, in multiple languages. Um, and then we also, you know, really view ourselves as, um, you know, building a, a holistic project. So we want to make sure that people's needs are addressed beyond just their legal needs. So um, looking at if they need referrals for um, counseling or if their family needs help with housing or um, food while, um, especially if the, the breadwinner of the family is detained. Um, so really trying to look at the um, client's situation as a whole and make sure that we're connecting them to resources um, here in Indianapolis or more broadly in Indiana. Um, and then secondly, um, a really important aspect in addition to providing that legal representation is that we also really wanted to lay the groundwork for community engaged research. Um, 
that really uh, centers and amplifies immigrant voices. And I'll let um, Ro talk about this because this is really her vision um, that we've been working to bring to life. Um, uh, but ultimately we want to, you know, um, connect the uh, skills of academics like Roe um, with the needs of um, clients. And, and one of the ways in which we do that is trying to document the serious um, human rights abuses and due process violations and really problematic um, and uh, really life-threatening detention conditions that our clients experience in immigration detention on a daily basis um, with the goal of promoting government accountability. Um, so I'll let Ro talk more about that, um, but that's a really central piece of our mission and vision for this work. Um, and then lastly, because I also have a social work background and because we do view this work you know, as holistic legal services, um, our goal is to build a, a mental health project that also allows us to collaborate with clinicians, whether it be, you know, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, to make sure that we're um, uh, connecting our clients with um, uh, mental health services or mental health evaluations while they're detained, and then making sure that they're also connected to clinicians clinicians once they're released, because we're very aware that, um, that the detention system itself causes trauma, um, but also that many of our clients have experienced trauma in a variety of ways, um, whether that be when they left their countries in kind of a traditional like asylum seeker model where they, they fled persecution and, and very um, serious trauma, or whether they've experienced trauma here in the United States, whether they've been you know, victims of crimes, whether they've dealt with very serious xenophobia, whether they felt like they've had to um, be in the shadows because they were undocumented and dealing with, you know, a great deal of fear. Um, so, you know, over the long term, um, we try to do that as well. Um, and then I also provide kind of some specialized uh, representation to individuals with serious mental illness and cognitive impairments um, in, in particular parts of the U.S., but that's kind of a smaller aspect of our work. Um, but really more broadly, we really you know, you can, as, as a sort of shorthand, you can imagine our Mariposa being a project that um, provides uh, an intersection of um, working with immigrants from a legal perspective, an academic perspective, and then also a mental health perspective. Well, I must I, say that's quite an agenda for a venture that's been in operation for just a little more than a year. Uh, Romelia, why don't you tell us more about your work in particular? Um, that's right. It's an ambitious agenda. Um, and I think that that really comes um, for Hannah and for me um, with from this deep desire that we both had um, to build Mariposa in a way that intentionally links legal service provision to building power in immigrant communities um, to combat um, these these systems of, of oppression that that they experience. Um, and for me, my, my, my research is, is very much driven from, from a similar place. Um, I, I grew up in an immigrant family household. Um, I saw my family navigate um, the system and I, I continued to, to study that um, in my education. Um, and so my research on um, immigrant detention and political activism um, also really seeks to, to center the experiences of directly impacted individuals um, and to, to amplify their voices. Um, what I've found as a, a political scientist is that um, social scientists don't do as great of a job um, 
of, of really highlighting the agency and resilience that exists in, in immigrant communities, um, particularly in political science. We've, we've tended to, to think of the immigrant community as a politically docile population. Um, and I think what I'm finding in my research and also in, in my own experience um, and, and collaborating with Hannah um, is that um, there is so much resilience in these communities um, and, and we just haven't done a great job of, of documenting what that looks like. Um, we focused on um, politics as being solely related to the electoral arena, um, voting, protest, um, but we haven't thought of the ways um, in which communities um, of color um, and and who are who are also um, confronting these systems in different ways, whether that means you know advocating for themselves um, through the legal process or um, per, uh, participating in um, mutual aid um, and other forms of organizing um, that that are super important and central to um, changing the the conditions that they face. Um, so, so that's kind of where, where my research um, ha has tried to, to intervene to really expand what we look at in terms of political participation and to think about um, how do uh, these communities respond to um, these really, um, especially over the past four years, um, traumatic experiences with government um, and what does that, how does that shape the way that they participate in politics. Um, Ro and Hannah, I'm intrigued by uh, the kind of um, critique that you bring to your own professions. Uh, Ro, you just said that the social scientist guild uh, doesn't do a good job of documenting the resilience and agency of immigrant communities. And uh, I'm just curious what it feels like to the two of you to have to engage the problems of the new Jim Crow um, from inside the professional context of um, uh, being doctoral student and lawyer? I can start off briefly. I mean, I think one of the things from a legal side of things is that we've really grown, I think, in part as a as, as starting Martiposa to really align ourselves more with folks who are um, uh, describing themselves as movement lawyers or movement, movement lawyering and people who are really um, engaged in the work with lawyers, but doing so in conversation and collaboration with the directly impacted communities. Um, and so I've found that lawyers who identify themselves in those ways or who you know, whether whatever type of legal work that they're doing, whether it's, you know, direct trial work, which is kind of how as I, I view myself, you know, actually going in with a client and talking to the immigration judge about their case specifically, um, or people who view themselves as litigators and, you know, doing big class actions or these, these sort of large cases that you hear about in the news more that have kind of a, a large scale impact. People who approach that work in a way that, you know, asking clients, you know, what are your goals here? Um, how is this aligned with work that's happening in your communities? And how do we think about not only addressing your particular case, but what's happening more broadly? And whether that's accompanying it with organizing work or, you know, um, 
as, as I highlighted before, you know, trying to document the experiences that they're having in different ways that promotes government accountability, um, that type of lawyering um, is more aligned than perhaps the type of lawyering that I was taught in law school, <laughs> um, which tends to be more, uh, you know, very focused on um, kind of the, the large law firm model or the kind of you know, private law firm model, um, which can often do a very good job of, you know, representing a particular client's interests, but sort of stops at the end of the case and doesn't necessarily, there are some advocates, there are some private lawyers who engage in broader advocacy, but doesn't necessarily situate, um, you know, cases in, in that way. And I think as a nonprofit lawyer, kind of a legal aid lawyer, so often the funding drives it in a way that lawyers are kind of pigeonholed to really just be the ones working the cases um, because that's what the funding is for, um, which makes sense from a sort of nonprofit perspective. Sometimes it's, it's often much more difficult to, um, or it's, it's often the most expensive for funders to pay for a lawyer. And so it's like, okay, well, lawyers should do this work. But um, that is both, I think, in my own experience has been isolating um, to not actually be working in, in collaboration and conversation and engagement with the client, the immigrant populations that I'm, you know, advocating for and, and in solidarity with. Um, and so that can be very difficult and I think unsustainable more broadly. Um, but it also, um, I think, divorces a really important conversation that should be ongoing between lawyers and the communities that they're representing. Um, so that's been my own experience with the legal profession. Um, Roe, do you want to, I mean, it, this really ultimately, Mariposa ultimately kind of came out of a conversation that Roe and I had about, you know, even just how she situated her, um, uh, the work that she envisioned for her dissertation as, as, uh, as, as a departure from what she'd seen political science. So I think it's actually probably more interesting to hear <laughs> um, Roe's view on this. Um, yeah, I think for me, and I think for Hannah as well, this just, you know, I think really goes back to um, our understanding of um, the complicated role of our professions um, in, in historically in confronting um, Jim Crow and, and the new Jim Crow that we know today um, in that, um, you know, in many instances, the law and academia have been used um, to co-opt movements, um, as Hannah was noting, you know, through funding grants to sort of appease um, the, the anger and the courage of organizers who are calling for, for broader changes. Um, and, and I think, um, I, I mean, a lot of that even just um, in my um, education has been learning that history of of, of wow, you know, when, when we have seen a broad base uh, of Americans um, rise up and, and um, organize for, for more transformative change, we have seen um, reforms come about that sort of stop, stop far short of, of what the original calls were for and that that has real impacts for people, right? Um, in many ways, Mariposa wouldn't exist um, if we didn't see sort of the failure of, of um, you know, reformist um, policies or, or ideas um, over the past 20 years to um, address um, systemic 
racial inequality in, in the US um, and just particularly within the criminal justice system and the immigration system. Um, and so I think we're really coming out of that and in my research as well is, is having seen that those, that those entire um, 10, 20 years in which the, the immigration system really converged with, with the criminal justice system. Um, I remember you know, writing a paper about uh, my own family's experience as an undergraduate um, and seeing that we were talking about criminal justice at that point, but we really weren't talking about immigration in, in the same way. Um, and then um, as a graduate student coming in and, and under the Trump era, um, I started my, my PhD um, right um, when, when Trump um, won the 2016 election. So you can imagine being a political scientist and, and in the classroom being told, oh, there's no way he's gonna win, that's not happening. Um, and you know, people that are supposed to know and understand politics sort of making those claims. And then as a first year going home to rural Illinois and hearing like people that you grew up with um, supporting um, um, these policies um, that are that are super punitive um, towards these communities, um, and understanding that um, you know my own field had really limitations or, or was in some ways divorced from what was really happening um, on the ground um, in everyday Americans' lives and understandings of um, politics, um, and I think for me that was um, a big. Um, sort of moment and understanding that, um, you know, um, we don't know everything um, and that there really is this disconnect um, between um, academics and, and the broader community that, that needs to be addressed. Um, and for me, that's meant really, really coming back to that in my own work in, in really important ways. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think it's, something that political science as a field and um, surely um, other um, academic fields are, are also confronting um, as, as our politics has continued to, um, to shift and in really dramatic ways, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah, Thank I think you, I appreciate your candor. Go ahead. I was just gonna say also, you know, I mean, I think all of the kind of systems that we operate in. I mean, we can't um, sort of forget that both fields that Roe and um, I are in are, are traditionally and heavily white led fields, right? Um, even though, you know, in terms of, I, I don't know the numbers in terms of the number of, you know, women and women of color entering graduate school, but, you know, for the last, I would say, I want to say at least five or 10 years, the number of people entering law school are um, the majority have been women. Um, but historically, of course, that hasn't been the case. Um, and so, you know, I think both Roe and I have encountered in our professions, you know, um, heavily white fields um, in, in the immigration sector. It's um, in terms of immigration lawyers, it's actually heavily white women. Um, and so also having to, you know, confront that as well. Um, you know, me as a, a white woman myself, having to, you know, acknowledge that that privilege, um, I mean, we'll talk more about how our immigration system is deeply, our, our racism as a country is deeply layered into our immigration laws. Um, but I think as our professions, um, also having to acknowledge that, um, you know, for myself as a white woman, that white privilege 
comes through in so many layered ways about how um, you know immigration representation happens um, and in the ways in which certain voices aren't heard at the table right um, which makes it all the more important for me as a white woman to be listening to and collaborating with people um, who are directly impacted and whose communities are directly impacted um, so it was very important, for example, when we started Mariposa, one of the most formative conversations that Roe and I had was with these um, young dynamic women um, who had uh, co-founded the Indiana Undocumented Youth Alliance um, about 10 years ago. And they literally, you know, could provide kind of an oral history of, you know, what had been happening on the ground in Indiana and what their own goals were. And you know, being able to talk with them and say, you know, okay, here is what we as a lawyer and, you know, academic are, are viewing as the gaps in Indiana and viewing as the needs. What do you think? And in hearing the ways in which there was clear um, overlap and resonance there, like that was affirming to us that, you know, we were on the right track, but then there were other things that they highlighted that very clearly led our trajectory, right? Um, and I think similarly, you know, Rose, um, the, the track that she has chosen for her PhD work of doing interviews with formerly detained individuals is not the easy track. It is hard research to do. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, you know, even going through the process of, you know, uh, the institutional research board and, you know, setting up this whole research project, right? There are more simple ways to do a political science uh, dissertation. Um, and, and even if it were focused on immigration, right? So I think um, I, I kind of, in, in one simple way, maybe in some ways, I think Ro and I are both trying to go back to the basics um, as a lawyer and as a political science and, and really say, okay, these are our roles. This is the privilege that our educations and that our um, professions are giving us, but how do we make sure that the voices that we're uplifting are not just our own, but are actually the people who who we're hearing every day? Should there should they want to speak, right? Um, and um, so I, I think that that's probably the easiest way to put it in a nutshell. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, let's let's talk about uh, Jim Crow, new and old, just a bit because. Uh, there are some very interesting analogies between the kind of effort you are launching with Mariposa and the kind of effort that was launched that led to Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, I think people struggle, genuinely struggle with how to understand the history of Jim Crow because of course uh, what really legitimated Jim Crow uh, was a Supreme Court decision in 1896 in Plessy versus Ferguson that legitimated the legal fiction that whites could segregate blacks without violating the US Constitution's guarantee of equality before the law. Uh, in the actual case, which uh, feels a little bit obscure to, um, to me at this point, the, held, the court held that a black person could be seated in a different section of a railroad car than a white person without being disadvantaged. It, it actually had to do with uh, the alignment of black bodies and white bodies in interstate transportation of the railroad uh, center. We know that this began uh, the basis for a series of legal judgments that permitted redlining and other forms of racial zoning 
We also know that civil rights advocates like Thurgood Marshall and Polly Murray, among others, methodically attacked the Jim Crow regime. In fact, over a period of several decades, they built a body of precedents that ultimately resulted in the Brown versus Board of Education decision of the US Supreme Court. Um, uh, as Hannah knows, one of my favorite books is uh, Jeffrey Kluger's book, uh, Simple Justice, which is about the uh, decades long effort that Charlie Houston at Howard Law School and others um, made to lay the basis for um, the decision that ultimately overthrew Plessy versus Ferguson in a nine to zero decision that oddly enough was made for reasons that many people even today dispute the legal basis of the decision uh, because of the Kenneth and Mamie Clark uh, research on the effects of uh, segregation in the best circumstances on um, the self-esteem of black children. Um, and so they, they took it apart from, from inside, so to speak. Um, but uh, Klugler's um, book has uh, a, famous epi a famous epigram that I think, uh, Hannah, you're familiar with by Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So M Margaret Mead is, um, is um, uh, a certain kind of academic, a certain kind of... Um, famous uh, academic uh, who uh, herself uh, challenged the assumptions of her time. But when we try to clarify the difference between the, Jim, the new Jim Crow and the old Jim Crow, uh, it seems to me that, that the new Jim Crow is about more than just tracking where black bodies are in relation to white bodies. It's um, a different level of surveillance, a different level of punishment, a different level of um, uh, death dealing than uh, what the old Jim Crow did. I, I recently had the opportunity to read the preface to the 10th anniversary edition of the book, which was published in 2020, shortly before the Biden administration succeeded the Trump's administration. Uh, but I'm very grateful that Hannah lent me her copy of uh, uh, the book that was published uh, 10 years ago. Hannah, what was your own response to this remarkable book, which uh, both explains what the old Jim Crow was and uses that as the analogy for uh, talking about this very distinct and uh, deeply troubling uh, set of, uh, of uh, oppression? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Michelle Alexander does an amazing job of um, really distilling the insidious ways in which um, even though the you know old Jim Crow which you know refers to very specific laws that were literally on the books that were you know incredibly incredibly racist um, that even without those um, explicit legal provisions that there is perhaps in a more insidious system um, that has been created in its absence um, and you know she really focused the first edition on, um, you know, talking about the incarceration, particularly of black and brown bodies, um, 
and both the legal framework for that, which, um, you know, as a lawyer, it, there's a couple chapters in there that basically uh, feels like a summary of uh, taking criminal procedure um, from law school. So if you want to avoid going to law school, but understand, um, you know, the, the legal framework for how this happens, I, I think that it's really helpful. Um, and, but she also really talks about the ways in which this system uh, of incarceration and then everything around incarceration. So, you know, probation, um, all of the, the uh, fees that people um, have to pay, you know, after, um, you know, a criminal case is completed, the motivations that people um, face the very complicated sets of motivations people face to plead guilty, um, even if they are actually innocent, which kind of belies the whole um, sort of American understanding of our constitutional rights to, you know, in it, be innocent until proven guilty, whereas in fact you can sit in jail for months um, and be assumed guilty and have your life completely turned upside down, in which case, you know, the, the forces pushing you to plead guilty and have a conviction on your record get, that can cause all sorts of complications for you um, are actually ever present, even though that constitutional provision remains the same. So I think she does a great job of, of highlighting all of that and, and making it, um, you know, understandable to, um, you know, all thoughtful people. So I think for anyone who hasn't read it, I would highly um, encourage it. But I also, I think as someone focused on the um, sort of parallel system that has been created, um, which I, I really shouldn't say parallel, in many ways, they're deeply interconnected. We, we talk about, um, in our and Ro and I's work, um, this notion of crimigration, which is literally the intersection of the two systems and how the um, communities that we work with. And um, so I was also really thankful to Michelle for even though she's been focused on the criminal justice system um, in, in her work, the fact that she um, pulled in or, or highlighted the fact that there is an immigration system, both in terms of private, a privatized immigration system, as well as just detention throughout the United States that happens in county jails, but people who are held in ICE custody in county jails, um, and highlights the ways in which it, it's basically the same thing, just in an immigration context. Um, and, and you know, you highlighted Plessy versus Ferguson. There, there's a parallel. Um, set of case law in the immigration context really starting with you know just as deeply sort of disgusting you know uh, what some have called kind of a stain on our supreme court precedent which is korematsu um, versus the united states in 1944 um, which has you know really um that was in the context of you know japanese internment but there have been many decisions that have you know um complicated um, and, and, and allowed um, the discrimination against immigrants in a variety of ways and certainly um, permitted immigration detention, even though um, in one of the key distinctions between the immigration system and the, the criminal justice system is that immigration is a civil offense. Um, so even though you hear a lot in, or people often hear, you know, about, you know, immigrants as criminals or immigrants as committing criminal acts, 
um, you know, by, for example, coming to the United States without a visa. Um, in fact, it's not a criminal act the vast majority of the time. In fact, it's a civil offense. And, you know, one of the, the deeply formative things about our country is that we treat criminal actions and civil actions in different ways. And yet that has become very conflated in the immigration context. And I think Michelle describes the historic origins, the, the complicated ways in which racism and xenophobia, xenophobia combine to create that reality. Um, and I really appreciated the fact that when she you know, wrote this preface to the, the 10th edition, that she highlighted the ways in which um, this system has you know, um, been exacerbated further, even in the time that she wrote the new Jim Crow. I think that one of the things that I find most disturbing about the new Jim Crow is how extensive it is. Romelia, how does your own research intersect with these themes? I understand you've recently completed the first part of your research with formerly detained individuals and their family members. What are you learning from persons who are undocumented and detained? I'm now looking at um, how experiences with the detention system um, influence um, the, the political lives of, of immigrants and, and how they see their relationship to government. Um, and, and what I've, I'm finding is that um, for immigrants, government um, and the law are really things that um, you have to learn to navigate um, and try not to be trapped by. Um, it really feels um, like, you know, you can go to the grocery store or you can, um, you know, be, be trying to just live your everyday life um, and, and are constantly living in fear that something could happen that um, could just change your life completely. Um, and, and so I think it's important to, to note that these um, piecemeal wins or when we've seen things like DACA pass um, and, and also then be challenged, right? Um, is that um, I think that more and more we're seeing that um, when we um, use these framings of who, you know, who is deserving and versus who is um, undeserving of, of the protection um, of, of immigration law and, or, or benefits, um, that has actually only um, left a lot of people behind um, and, and meant that there, there were more people to police and more people to detain um, who don't fit the categories um, that protect some. So I, I think the story that my, my research is, is really um, trying to, to understand is what does that mean now that so many people um, are likely to interact with government through immigrant detention? Um, and what does that mean for, for the way that they um, then feel that they um, are, are able to or not engage in politics and, and what is a, a safe form of political participation for them um, or a possible form of political participation um, in a context where, where their, their rights and their, their dignity um, is so constrained um, or so um, limited. Um, and I think that what I'm seeing is that um, people have very heterogeneous responses to, to these very traumatic experiences with government. 
um, you know, there are folks that are, are, are ready to, um, to, to tell their story and that are, are ready to um, expose um, the abuse that, that has occurred um, within our, our country's immigration system. Um, and I think that there are more and more folks who are seeing the parallels um, with the criminal justice system and um, police violence and, and brutality against um, Black Americans. Um, and at the same time, there, there's also a lot, a lot of fear. Um, and there's also um, the very, um, the reality of the possibility of retaliation um, that if they, they speak out about their experience in immigrant detention, um, that that will somehow um, lead to more harm. Um, and I think that that's a reality that a lot of people of color um, have learned to live with in the US that um, they're not really safe um, in a lot of contexts and that they have to be very cautious um, about what they say and what they do um, just to live their everyday lives. Ro, what have you learned so far in your research about how the conditions detained immigrants are facing here in Indiana compared to elsewhere? Are there significant patterns of incarceration that the citizens of Indianapolis should know about uh, what is happening in their city and state? Um, before Ro jumps in and actually talks about, you know, what she's learned in terms of, um, you know, Hoosiers who are experiencing this pattern, I wanted to just jump in and um, provide one uh, um, sort of clarification because one of the odd features of the immigration detention system in comparison to the criminal justice system that Michelle Alexander, you know, highlights so well in the new Jim Crow is that I think we're all pretty similar, if nothing else, from cop shows <laughs> um, that, you know, when someone is arrested in criminal custody, they're often held in a, you know, county or city jail, whatever municipality, you know, um, here in Marion County, it's literally city and county, right? Because our uh, county and city is um, coextensive, um, but basically held by, you know, local enforcement, or if you're picked up by, you know, state police officer in, in state custody, right? It's a little different in immigration because immigration, as I highlighted before, is a civil offense, um, and it's a federal offense. So they're highlighted there, you know, when a person, for example, um, you know, enters without a visa, or they have a visa, and they violate the visa, or they have a green card, and they violate the green card, they're violating civil federal immigration law. And so our local police officers don't have any jurisdiction to hold people on that ground. So um, what happens, you know, what many people hear about in the border, um, and, and may be most familiar with immigration detention on the border, whether it's because of, you know, family detention or the detention of children, for example, is that there are these large private immigration detention centers where the federal government has contracted with a big, um, you know, immigration uh, detention um, corporation, for example, like GEO, um, there are a number, I think three or four of them are, are the biggest that have these large detention centers and people are literally held in federal custody um, in a facility that is funded by the federal government. That is very common all along the southern border with Mexico, um, you know, 
Texas, Arizona, all of that. In, the, in what we call the interior or like the Midwest or the East Coast, um, we don't have those facilities. And so what the federal government has done rather than build these new facilities that are privatized is that they have contracted with local county jails most of the time um, that have, I'll put in for, for our listeners, um, in quotation marks, uh, extra bed space, which often actually means that county jails um, expand their facilities to have bed space that then they can fill with people who are held in immigration detention and they get paid by the federal government for that bed space. So it really depends. I, I, I don't remember um, specifically because there are about six or seven county jails in the Midwest where people from Indiana might be held. Um, and uh, so it ranges from like, you know, $75 per day to $95 per day, for example, um, per person per bed. Um, so, you know, that's what we deal with here in the Midwest um, is that because all individuals from Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Kentucky are all under the jurisdiction of the Chicago Immigration Court and Chicago ICE, they can be held in any one of four states um, while they're detained. Um, so Roe can sort of highlight what we see with Hoosiers specifically in, here in Indiana, but I just wanted to sort of explain, you know, what particular facilities we're really even talking about. Yeah, thank you, Hannah, um, for that background, um, because I think that um, really speaks to um, the the incredible levels of, of variation that that we see in the immigrant um, detention context. Um, there, there's a lot of um, also variation in terms of enforcement, right, um, across the country, um, uh, the border versus the interior um, enforcement patterns look different, um, and I think that that also has um, important implications for, for how immigrants um, feel in, in certain contexts. Um, you know, we've seen also the increased uh, variation in responses in terms of sanctuary cities and, and sanctuary policies um, and just different forms of um, including um, or hyper surveilling um, immigrants in different states. So um, I think and that is also a really important um, part of of what um, Alexander is describing too, in terms of, of the new Jim Crow, in terms of the devolution of um, federal immigration policy to the states, right, um, and and the localized nature um, of of immigration enforcement um, over the past ten years. Um, but in terms of Indiana. Um, and, and what Hannah was describing um, and the use of county jails in particular. Um, in Indiana, um, Clay County Jail um, is supposed to be a short-term um, detention center that um, is supposed to hold immigrants for two weeks um, before being transferred to other county jails in the region. Um, however, what we've seen, especially in, in the pandemic, um, is that Clay will often hold people for much longer. Um, and that means that these kinds of, of county jails are ill-equipped to really um, hold people for that long safely um, uh, while they're in their custody. Um, and, and, and that can lead to a lot of, of really um, unsafe um, detention conditions and, and um, strained 
relationships with um, officers and, and also um, a lack of clarity or understanding of what that relationship even is between um, folks that are being held for um, immigration matters versus criminal matters, um, and um, which is, opens up a lot of, 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 of opportunities for, for harm and, and punitiveness to, to also enter the, the immigration system. Um, in terms of um, patterns that we've seen of immigration enforcement in Indiana, I think something else that, that we're really seeing is that um, Indiana um, being, you know, a, a red state um, and um, not allowing any sort of sub or sub um, state um, municipal policies to be enacted um, as sanctuary city policies, for example. Um, means that um, immigration enforcement during the Trump era really escalated and um, has really targeted more and more individuals um, with relatively minor, if if absolutely, you know, no um, prior criminal um, record or history, um, and and that has meant um, increasingly um, cooperating with ICE to hold people um, for. Um, minor driving offenses, for example, or um, increasingly um, policing um, and and harsher sentences for um, driving under the influence or driving without a license, um, which really um, has created a lot of barriers for folks um, as as being another um, area that um, is being heavily policed in Indiana. Uh, and that we're seeing um, uh, more and more folks being um, targeted for. Um, and another issue that really um, has has been alarming to see um, over the past four years is, you know, um, as we know, when immigration is localized, um, what happens is that there are more opportunities for racial profiling um, and that um, people can be um, targeted for, um, for driving, you know, simply while being brown, um, or you know, if you're uh, a person of color and you're, you know, hanging out with friends, um, maybe um, something could happen, and 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 that could lead to to a legal matter that um, then complicates um, or has immigration consequences down the road. Um, so I think that those um, are just some things um, to think about in terms of, of the Indiana context. I think this gives a good um, opportunity for us to just highlight briefly that some of our partners, um, Cosecha, the Indiana Undocumented Youth Alliance, other organizers on the ground are doing a great job really pushing for a statewide campaign for undocumented individuals to be able to have accesses to access to driver's licenses, excuse me. And, um, you know, it's something we see so commonly, you know, I've done three intakes this week and every single person has had at least one driving without a license situation. Um, whether that's involved, you know, them actually admitting that and, you know, paying a fine for that, which is very minor, or whether it's been dismissed or whatever, but it's a very common way um, for, you know, someone to just be driving work. And then you can imagine every day living with the fear of, well, if I'm driving to work, what if I get pulled over? And what if 
um, I end up in an immigration detention at the end of this day. What, is, what does that do? What does that fear do um, to families and to communities? Near the end of the new preface to the 10th anniversary edition of the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness, the author Michelle Alexander offers a rather frank and concise description of what we might call the trajectory of the new Jim Crow. She reminds readers, quote, the, new, the first private prison in this country was created to cage immigrants. Now private prison companies have their sights set on building digital prisons that may have even more devastating impact on black communities than brick and mortar ones as it is far easier to contain and control entire communities digitally rather than cement walls. Similarly, key provisions of the Patriot Act, which allowed for the government to search homes without notifying their owners or residents, and which were advertised as necessary to root out Muslim terrorists following 9-11, wound up being used primarily for drug law reinforcement, not terrorism investigations, uh, end quote. Immediately following that rather stark description of the challenges that advocates face, Michelle Alexander offers what she describes as her, quote, prayer and hope, end quote, for those who are leading new movements of social change. She writes these words, the struggle to birth a truly inclusive egalitarian democracy a nation in which every voice and every life truly matters, did not begin with us and will not end with us. This struggle is as old as the nation itself and the birth process has been painful to say the least. My greatest hope and prayers that we will serve as faithful midwives and do what we can in our lifetimes to make America finally what it must become. Uh, Hannah and Roe, I was struck by Michelle Alexander's use of the midwifery metaphor for social change in the new preface. In some ways, it's similar to the Daughters of Hope metaphor that St. Augustine used in the early fifth century. But even more, I'm struck by Michelle Alexander's sense that it is possible to build coalitions that will make change possible. What is your own sense of the matter? Do you share her hope in this regard? Why or why not? Um, I think um, I, I do share some of that hope. And I think that's also where my research is intervening as well. Um, I think that um, for a long time, we've thought of folks with um, carceral experiences as um, being alienated from politics um, or not being able to challenge these, these, these very um, long standing um, systems of oppression. Um, but I think we've seen it even here in Indiana, um, we've seen um, incredible resilience uh, just this past summer um, after um, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, we, we also held um, or were a part of um, organizations that came together to protest um, um, outside of Clay County Jail um, and, and pushing to, to end that contract. Um, and I think just seeing the incredible leadership and collaboration of organizations like Indy 10 and um, the Indiana Undocumented Youth Alliance um, speaks to the incredible hope of building coalitions um, that can, can really help to challenge these systems. And I think um, 
that is something that is, is really encouraging and really powerful. Yeah, I think I'll echo what Rose said. I mean, there are, there are certainly days um, where, you know, I think many of us have experienced a sense of hopelessness during the pandemic. And, and there are certainly days where Rowan and I's work, where the, that, that system that um, Michelle describes that is just so extensive and, um, you know, in the context of immigration detention, you know, we see even when people are released from immigration detention, sometimes they have to have ankle monitors. Sometimes they have to check in with ICE, you know, on a, you know, quarterly basis or a monthly basis and the impact on, you know, people's lives, um, the, the, the amount of fear that being a part of the immigration court system, um, you know, has, especially when our immigration court system is very dysfunctional and takes many years on end. So, you know, there, there are certainly moments where that feels overwhelming. Uh, I'll be honest about that. Um, and especially when, you know, talking with clients who are experiencing the, the specific detention conditions, when they're getting COVID in detention, when they're, um, you know, when we, can't get clients out to be able to move their process along, even when that seems the most just outcome. Um, that being said, I, I do think the last year of doing work in Indiana has allowed us to be in relationship with um, folks here who are doing incredible work on the ground. And they do give me very much hope. Um, you know, watching Roe do this research over the last nine months, you know, from having this vision of, you know, what if I tried to interview folks who have had these experiences and like let that lead the future of political science research and then actually watching her do that. That's been incredible. Um, you know, watching advocates um, from Cosecha, you know, persevere in the face of, you know, lack of support in, you know, the first, first legislative session of 2021, but continue to say, we're going to push for driver's licenses. This is a matter of justice for our communities. And the, the amount of power and energy, as well as, you know, complete pragmatic acknowledgement of what they're up against. You know, it reminds me of what, or it makes me imagine what it must have been like for, you know, um, the young people who were involved in the civil rights movement and working with Martin Luther King and, and seeing every day the dangers that face them and yet persevering. Um, I see that in the young organizers that we've encountered and the collaboration, the sort of intersectional collaboration between, you know, Black Lives Matter organizers and, you know, Surge, the Standing Up for Racial Justice group here in Indianapolis and Indiana Undocumented Youth Alliance. That also is very, um, powerful and hopeful to me because um, it's not along, you know, particular lines. It's not like, oh, immigration, that's a separate issue. Um, people are really coming together. And so that, that keeps me hopeful on those days. Um, and ultimately, I think too, you know, we talk a lot about dreamers, but there's a whole generation of folks who are now, you know, millennials who are in their 30s and 40s who have spent their whole lives in the U.S. and have been fighting for status. And um, I think that that, that shapes um, just the experience of everyday Americans. And so I'm hopeful that in the long term that we will um, come together both in Indiana and our country to see, um, see a vision of immigration justice realized as well. But 
Um, I don't necessarily see that in my work every day, but I, I do see that in, in the people of Indiana and the immigrant communities of Indiana every day. Well, thank you, Mariposa. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Ro. Thank you for the uh, time you've taken to talk with me today and for um, sharing with our listeners about uh, the work you're doing. And to our audience, I say thank you for joining me for today's conversation about Mariposa Legal confronting the new Jim Crow. Uh, I take courage from the hard work that Hannah Cartwright and Romelio Solano are doing. And in the meantime, um, let's all have a Juneteenth imagination. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>